0: For 10 years, the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation has been hosting the Choosing Wisely campaign, in which specialty societies create lists of items that providers and patients should question. But medical services that don't improve patients' health continue to cost the United States billions of dollars a year. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Vikas Sani, President of the Lowne Institute. Dr. Sani, what concerns led to the creation of the Choosing Wisely campaign in 2012, and what were the goals behind it?
1: I think by 2012, there was a growing recognition that the combination of high costs in healthcare and the demographic changes, particularly with the baby boom entering their senior years, that the costs of healthcare in general were going to be too high. And so there was a fundamental growing concern about the quality and efficiency of our healthcare system. Now, within that, there were a lot of different currents, and choosing wisely was oriented towards the profession led by the American Board of Internal Medicine and represented an attempt by the medical profession to tackle some of the questions that were increasingly of concern outside of healthcare from payers and the government and others, to try to own some of this and figure out a path forward that would achieve high quality care at less cost in the framing of that time and since actually be better care for all of us.
0: How do specialty societies choose which items to put on their lists of low value care and how do they assess value?
1: Well, I think that is the heart of the matter. Of course, there's an old saw that one person's overuse is somebody else's absolutely indicated care. And so it is in the eye of the beholder. The attempt really, and the original source of the Choosing Wisely campaign, was an effort by a group of primary care physicians to look at the literature and to begin to ask questions about what are very common procedures that really are not justified. And that effort, which was published, led to a recognition that this was not a small problem. It was not a problem isolated to primary care. But that it really is a problem throughout the profession. And so other societies got on board. But as they got on board, the criteria that were used and the relative importance, either in terms of volume of services or dollar amounts, those varied a lot. So there was really not a systematic methodology that was applied other than the process methodology of going through the literature and achieving a professional consensus and the like.
0: In a Perspective article, Elizabeth Rourke writes that the political compromises that have allowed Choosing Wisely to expand and to flourish have also rendered it toothless. Do you agree with that assessment?
1: I think it's a strong statement that I don't think captures the impulse or the intent or even some of the results. But I do agree that the primary effect of the Choosing Wisely campaign was to create awareness. And even there, there's a lot of discussion and some data suggesting the levels of awareness are not as high as they could be or should be after 10 years. There's no question that the Choosing Wisely campaign was a really important icebreaker on a broader conversation about what we do as clinicians and what that value is, what we think we do that delivers value, and then what we actually do. So Toothless is strong, but I think There were some inherent limitations in an approach that was profession-centric. So there were strengths in that approach, but there were also some inherent limitations.
0: Are there cultural factors that affect why patients still request low-value care and why clinicians still provide it?
1: I think there's no doubt that cultural factors are a huge dimension to the problem. And the evidence for that is really that, as the article points out, that it's not just that they're choosing wisely campaigns in countries with single-payer systems or centralized systems, but that there's actually unnecessary care, low-value care in these systems. And that's because a lot of what drives this is really not specific to the payment mechanism, but is specific to a lot of what has become pretty common culture throughout the world, certainly in terms of modern technological medicine. Those cultural factors are things like the newest technology has got to be the best, shiny new, very expensive things that are very scientific, almost certainly must provide some benefit. How could they not? There are biases about doing is better than not doing, knowing is better than not knowing. There's a range of things, some of which are inherent in human psychology, some of which are contingent to our historical period, and some of which are more deeply rooted in culture. There's no question that all of those factors go into it. On the other hand, there are countervailing forces, and I think those are underutilized and underrealized, really, in our current system. And so a lot of the work going forward, I think, has to be to think through what those are and how to mobilize them in the service of high-value care.
0: Looking at it from another angle, Rourke points out that any significant reduction in the amount of healthcare provided would result in financial and job losses. So how much do economic factors affect the provision of low value care? And and is there any way around that conflict?
1: Economic factors are both enablers of rapid adoption of low value care, often with a veneer of biologic plausibility. I think it's Steve Nissen at the Cleveland Clinic who likes to say, the road to hell is paved with biologic plausibility. So economic factors certainly drive rapid adoption, and economic factors certainly impede the disadoption, if you will, of procedures that have been shown not to be particularly effective. So there's no question that they play a role. There's also no question that in a third party payment environment, you know what economists like to call moral hazard, There's no question that if you come to me and and I'm saying, well, you know, I don't know what this chest pain is, but why don't we do the thallium stress test just to be sure? And it's that just to be sure that gets enabled by the fact that you're not paying and I'm not paying. In fact, I might make some money. So it's not so much that I'm thinking about that, but there are no hurdles or barriers. You've
0: worked with an organization called the Right Care Alliance, Has that group or any others implemented programs that have successfully reduced low-value care?
1: I would have to say the answer is no. And I think that's really in large measure because we still haven't found the formula. We haven't cracked the code on this. But I will say that the concept of the Right Care Alliance is still probably on the right track, which is to say, I don't think like Choosing Wisely, professional societies by themselves can make this happen. I do think it has to be an alliance, a joint project of both patients and communities and the medical profession. And I think it's only both in dialogue, but also in collaboration, that the kinds of initiatives that could begin to really reduce low-value care and enhance the value of all the other care that the system has and delivers, I think that's the only way we'll go forward. And in general, I think that's because using lists as choosing wisely has done is helpful to a point, but you reach a point where you begin to see the numbers on those lists are in the thousands and you start needing a computer. And so if you're a computer aficionado, of course, you'll just code all this stuff and that'll help. But really in many ways, I think, The challenge is that this is a systemic problem, and systemic problems need systemic solutions. And so, for that purpose, we really need almost like a Manhattan Project in which there are multiple stakeholders, and the problem is both recognized and there's enough motivation on all sides to actually tackle it. And from the point of view of the public, what I've been saying for a long time is the public, patients, community leaders, need to understand, and we in healthcare need to be willing to create the mechanisms for actually creating benefits, direct benefits to patients and communities from the reduction of low-value care. And that's part of the problem with the economics, as we were saying earlier, because really, if we reduce low-value care, The money doesn't go back to patients or to communities to invest in health or population health or school or green space or exercise. It doesn't go there. If we were to reduce low value care, where would the money go? That question has not really been addressed. So when you have parties that stand to lose, they're not going to be in favor of it. And if you don't have parties who can clearly see how they gain, They're not motivated. And so I think that's a central problem of this kind of question. If we could develop mechanisms whereby the savings from reducing low value care were clearly and transparently and with some degree of accountability redeployed in ways that helps everybody, then I think we'd have a different conversation and a different dynamic. And that's kind of where we need to go, I think.
0: Finally, more broadly, how can the healthcare system move toward an emphasis on conversations and relationships, and away from the excessive use of tests and other services?
1: That is the heart of the matter, isn't it? I think there's a fundamental problem in how we think about healthcare, and how we think about it in terms of value and efficiency, for example. So the first question is, what is the product in healthcare? In some ways treating healthcare like a business, which is what we're doing and what we have been doing, is completely wrong. By treating healthcare as a business, you ask yourself the question, what is the product? And the answer, if you think about an iPhone, an iPhone is a product that has certain features, it has a certain price point, it has certain materials, the company that's making them has to make them at a certain efficiency. And everybody's making money and everybody's happy and they love their iPhone, et cetera. In healthcare, the real problem is that our healthcare delivery system is organized as a business. And the product of that business is not health. The product of that business is not healing. The product of that business is healthcare stuff, healthcare procedures, services. So when you create widgets, then you've got a widget factory. And the real problem is, and this is maybe another American healthcare paradox. I'm quoting from Betsy Bradley's and Lauren Taylor's book, but maybe there's another health care paradox, and that is efficiency in healthcare, paradoxically, takes more time. The more time you spend, the more efficient you are. But that's if your product is health and a healing relationship. Because if your product is, let me get the surgery done, then it's all about throughput. It's all about screening the patient quickly and fast and moving on to the next patient, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And in that environment, of course, it's really hard to identify and reduce low-value care because as Dr. O'Rourke says in the perspective, there's uncertainty. It takes time. It takes conversation. And so one of the ironies is that you're more efficient in healthcare if you take more time. You're doing less to the patient the more time you spend with the patient. Anybody who's been in longitudinal relationships with their patients, and I've been fortunate to have those relationships over 10, 20, 30 years, knows that when you know each other really well, those decisions are not that complicated you get to a right answer. And it's in the face of scientific uncertainty. It's in the face of everything we know and don't know and the patient and the family and the context. But we can't practice that way. We're not going to be able to practice that way unless we create a different way of doing things. And that means creating the space to take the time to understand each other and understand the situation. If we do that, I mean, I hate to say it, we probably would be doing maybe a third less of what we do in healthcare. And getting there is the challenge. And I think systemically structuring a system that allowed that, that didn't penalize doctors who take time with their patients, that actually promoted some of these elements that would allow patients to understand better what's going on. And in that process, let people make their decisions on those areas using shared decision-making that are very ambiguous, I suspect we would see a natural drop in low-value care without a lot of focus, without a lot of hectoring or penalties or the like. That's the challenge.
0: Thank you, Dr. Sani.